0: All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Honest Defense. Today, I am honored to be joined by Alfred Regnery. Alfred spent nearly 20 years as president and publisher of Regnery Publishing, his family's publishing company. He, they published several hundred titles, including 23 New York Times bestsellers. He currently serves as president of Republic Book Publishing. Uh, Republic has published a number of books from authors that we've had on this show, including Alec Klein, Casey Mulligan, and John Cribb. Uh, Alfred, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, my pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: So I wanted to get into your background first a little bit, your family's background. Regnery Publishing has been around for a very long time. How did your family get started in the industry?
1: Well, my father started the business just after World War II, and he had been working in a family business that my grandfather, his father, ran, and um, it was in the textile business. And he was more interested in in ideas and um, issues and different things. And he was very concerned about the way We were getting out of World War II. He saw the building of the beginning of of the Soviet Union um, becoming a a powerful place and and a a big entity in the world and various other things. So he thought the best way to actually express an opinion and and to make ideas known was through books. So he started a little book publishing company. He liked to say that it was upstairs in a drugstore. He had an awful little office. And um, within a couple of years, he had some Rather major books. Um, one of the first big books he had was God and Man at Yale by Bill Buckley. Um, he published um, a number of books about uh, Soviet the Soviet Union about communism. Um, he published Whitaker Chambers' book Witness. Um, there were oh there was a book on um, on China that he published the the loss of China to communism that was a big big success and sort of a lot of other things and. He probably became, over the years, known as one of the foremost conservative publishers in the country. Of course, back in those days, in the 50s, there weren't many conservatives. Um, They were few and far between, and um, the world was not a particularly friendly place. Um, But he figured it out, and little by little, he kept publishing, I suppose he, during the course of his life, he must have published six or 700, maybe a thousand titles, from all sorts that were across. They were mostly nonfiction um, mostly books on issues, but not all of them. Um, there were some religious books and different things. And, um, I took the business over, um, in the middle. Well, I was there for through the sixties and the seventies on and off. And then, um, then I went to law school and did some other things. I was in the, um, worked in the U S Senate on the Senate judiciary committee as a counsel after law school. And I spent uh, six years in the Reagan justice department. And that was so in 86. When I when I I left the, the Reagan administration, I took over the business, moved it to Washington, um, and we we sort of refreshed it, um, we reorganized it, hired a bunch of people, and then over the next 15 years or so, we published, um, as you mentioned, uh, several hundred books, um, some big ones, some uh, one bestseller after another. Um, one of the big ones we did was called Senatorial Privilege. It was a the tell all about the Chappaquiddick incident um, with Teddy Kennedy. And that was a number one bestseller. Uh, we did a book called Bias um, about a CBS reporter about media bias that was a number one bestseller. Um, oh, there was just all sorts of other things. Then, when, when Bill Clinton was elected, we had the time of our life because we did, I think, eight different bestsellers about the, what was going on inside the Clinton administration. And that was great fun. And um, we, we got a lot of attention out of that. Ultimately, um, the business was sold. I stayed on for a while after it was sold, and then eventually left and did a number of other things. I've been interested in law enforcement, and I did some things there. And um, then two uh, two two and a half years ago, a friend of mine who had been in the publishing business also sold his business, and I got together. We were old friends. And we thought, hey, we're still young enough. Why not go around again? So we um, we uh, started this other business, the Republic Book Publishers, you mentioned. And, um, I think we have 23, 24 books now that we've either working on editorial or which have emerged into the marketplace. And um, you're having a great time with books, I guess, is true. Even in this digital age, books um, make a lot of difference. I mean, a big book can start an idea. Um, After all, ideas are really what make the world go round. And um, so whole trends start as a result of a well-written book, a well-produced book. books are, you know, I mean, you, you sell far fewer copies than people watch a television show. But um, one of the great advantages is because people like you, because we have our books interviewed, our authors interviewed by television, radio, we have reviews written op eds. And so whatever the idea in the book is gets out to a lot more people and ultimately read the book. So it's a very satisfying way, way to make a living for an old guy. And uh, we're having a lot of fun.
0: I, I think there is a, a movement towards people wanting to have physical books again, with everything being digital. I mean, I feel it myself. I, I look at screens so much that I, I enjoy having a physical book in my hand and, and reading ideas that way. And I think more and more people my age and younger are are interested in that physical manifestation of, of these ideas.
1: Oh, sure. And you, you know, you get, you, you remember a book that you read five or 10 years ago, you pull it down off your shelf. I mean, I see you've got a bunch of them behind you and. You remember you remember some of it, but a lot of it you don't. You refresh your memory and learn it all over again. So it's um,
0: yep. I want I want to go back to the early days of Regnery when your when your father first started after the war. What kind of support did he get, uh, both from the publishing industry and from the general public, talking about the problems with the rise of the Soviet Union? I mean, did people see that as an issue in those days?
1: Some did, but a lot didn't. Um, you know, the world was after World War II. The United States was pretty much dominated by what was then liberalism. Um, there were a lot of anti-communist liberals, but the the trend in was basically that let the government do a lot of things. I mean, the big government had brought us out of the depression. The big government had won World War II. Um, people thought it worked. Um, business, of course, was was fine. I mean, it, the the country was profitable and. Um, there's lots, lots going on in, in, um, industry and that sort of thing. But no, the, you know, then, then you got into the Eisenhower administration and it was, people were not nearly as interested in, in what was going on as they are now. Um, or even later than after, after that in the sixties and seventies, um, after all, the country was peaceful. Everybody was raising their children. They were making a living, um, yeah, communism was a, was a, the Soviet Union was an increased threat. And then, I mean, China still was nothing at those days, but um, I guess little by little as um, certainly foreign policy was dominated by um, containing communism, but there were big arguments there within, um, with experts as to whether or not you actually confronted them or whether you just contained them, whether um, this was a, going to be a, sort of a two-part world between the West and the East and and forever and ever. Um, So, you know, the trend was, of course, when when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, um, he came in and said, no, it's not gonna be the two of us, we're gonna win. And he said, you know, the the famous quote, um, somebody, a reporter asked him shortly after he was in the White House, what do you think about the Cold War? And he says, I think we're gonna win and they're gonna lose. And that became the attitude um, in the 80s, really, of, of the administration. And that's, I mean, we we transferred all of our power um, into ba- basically bringing down the Soviet Union, and it worked. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a very interesting trend. But going back to your original question, yeah, you know, what support was there? I mean, the it was a rather unusual thing for somebody to publish conservative books. Um, this book, God and Man at Yale, might have been the best example. I mean, it was Yale's, what, 250th anniversary, I think. The book came out, and here this young upstart guy, Buckley, wrote this book that sort of criticized the place where he just graduated. And nobody could believe that any such thing could happen. I mean, Yale was sacred. You know, you no, there's nothing wrong with it. He said, oh, yeah, there's a lot wrong with it. Look what they are teaching. And, of course, what they were teaching then as compared to what they're teaching now was, um, I mean, we wish they were teaching that stuff again. But so, um but anyway, yeah, there was a huge opposition. I mean, that book um, went to the top of the bestseller list. It was reviewed um, very widely. It was condemned by some, praised by others. I mean, it really generated a, a fairly major debate on academic freedom, on what's taught in universities, um, what, what they bring to the table and that sort of thing. So it was, I mean, it was a great example of a, of a book that might have sold in those days 100,000 copies, but really changed higher education.
0: How did how did Regnery come across uh, that that book at the time and, and Buckley at the time? Because I that was his first book that he had published, correct? It
1: was his first book. He was just out of Yale. He'd been the editor of the Yale Daily News. Um, my father was becoming known as the place to go when you had a book that was. I mean, a, a New York publisher wouldn't have touched that book. Yeah, this was against the whole um, the, everything they believed in, and they would have. Um, even though it was, he was a bright person. He was a good writer. Obviously, nobody knew where he was going to go, but um, no, they, they wouldn't have touched it. And I don't know really how they got together. I don't know exactly how it was, but somehow they did. And he submitted the book and my father said, yeah, this is exactly what this world needs. And there went.
0: How do you feel about the, the current state of conservatism and conservative ideas? Because like you said, the same issues that Buckley brought up publishing God and man at Yale are the same issues that conservatives are concerned with today. And, and they wish they had the issues, like you said, that, that Buckley had back then. Do you think that th- the ideas have made any progress whatsoever in in higher education specifically?
1: Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it's um, in a way, yes. Um, but things have, have also, I mean, there things go on in the universities now that you would probably wouldn't have dreamt up of 40 or 50 years ago. Um And I guess to answer the question, there's sort of two prongs to conservatism. There's the intellectual side, which basically people believe in liberty and they believe in the constitution and they believe in um, faith in in God and they believe in um, order, um, tradition, things like that, which are broad concepts. And then there's the more political side, which is what goes on every day. And some people even question whether that's very closely aligned to the traditional ideas that are the... The basis of modern conservatism. So, um, you know, it's there's no simple answer. Um, I guess back to your question, certainly there is. um, There are lots of people across the country, lots of professors and others in universities who are conservatives and who teach conservative things. Um, But then there are lots of them who aren't too. So, um, you know, there's a pretty vibrant debate.
0: When you were growing up, did you ever go through a rebellious phase? Were you ever interested in, in leftist ideas or, or the communist ideas, anything along those lines? No,
1: I never really did. My brother did, but I didn't. And I guess I was more, I stayed more in line with what my family believed.
0: Did you always plan to follow in, in your father's footsteps? Did you always want to get into publishing?
1: I actually probably did. I mean, until I, yes and no. I mean, I, I worked in the company when I was in college and um, I was interested in journalism for a while, and I was writing, and um, then I actually started working for the company pretty soon after I got out of college. I did for a while, and then I went back afterward to law school, Um, so I was doing the legal thing, and I actually practiced law for a while, and as I said, I worked in the government um, as a lawyer, but, um, and I maintained my bar membership and and still do, but um, other than that, I was in and out of it, I guess, all of my life, and I found it to be a very satisfying way to, to spend your time.
0: And you said the Clinton years were, were barn buster years for Regnery. Why was it specifically that the Clinton administration was so good for for your books?
1: Well, we were, our office was right in downtown Washington. Um, and I, having come from working in the Senate, I knew a lot of people. I got to know more. And so these people that were, I mean, there was sort of no end of of proposals and manuscripts, people that. Had had something to do with the administration, or were watching it from the outside, journalists and others, and um, so we had. I, I, there was. It was just a time when there was, and there were lots of interesting things to write about. Um, I mean, Clinton, like him or not, was a pretty interesting guy, and people. I mean, there was there. They made good fodder for books, and um, but they, I mean, we did foreign policy books. There were several books on China and on um, on. The Clinton foreign policy generally a lot of domestic things um, issues that we had um, le- uh, books on the courts and whatnot but um, and there were some big ones I mean I think the, the the let's see the biggest one we had was it was a number one bestseller was by um, Gary Aldrich he was an FBI agent who had worked inside the White House during Clinton and it was called Unlimited Access and it was it was a huge book I mean it was um, it, we couldn't keep it in print it was great. Um, the later uh, another one we did which was after that was about Kerry that book that was called Unfit for Command. And that book I remember that I remember is the that one. It's so satisfying about being a publisher. The New York Times had had an article about Kerry in maybe August or September before the election and they said they were talking about this book and they said if Kerry loses it will be because of this book. And he wow. lost.
0: <laughs> being a conservative publisher, did you get any kind of pushback or criticism or, or attempts at censorship from the rest of the industry whether that's that's booksellers or other publishers were there people that kind of worked to try to undermine what you were doing? No
1: um, because we the book sold and that apparently was more important than um, if there was ideology and no they I don't think so. I mean we our books were everywhere in all the big bookstores and they were reviewed and we were on the New York Times list and um, people didn't like it particularly a lot of people. Sure thought that our books were um that they disagreed with them but in those days i guess it was maybe there was the the sort of censorship you have now didn't exist right Or if it had existed it was it was minimal i mean nobody ever would have thought about tearing down a statue or having a book burned right as right do now so um, yeah and it was
0: w- was there a particular reason you decided to leave regnery and start a, a new publisher
1: well the company was sold actually we so we um we, there was, we had a partner, and then it was sold, and so, as I say, I stayed on after it was sold as the president for another four or five years, and then uh, it became, uh, for whatever reason, it was sold again to a different company. The company still exists, so goes right. on, but, um, but then I got out of it, and uh, so then back in again.
0: <laughs> right, right, and so, yeah, I want to talk about what's been going on lately, because like I said, we've had on a, a few of, of your authors, and John Cribb in particular, I know, was dealing with, when we had him on, I think this had just happened, that that you were trying to run ads for his book old Abe, which was a completely non-political book other than the fact that he's writing about a former president, Abraham Lincoln. Um, but when he tried to take out Facebook ads to promote the show, or I'm sorry, promote the book, Facebook restricted those ads. They, they, you weren't allowed to run those ads. And so I was, I'm not sure what, how involved you were in that or whether I was very involved
1: in it. I mean, it was, tell me about that. Well, and it was, it was an interesting situation. We, um, we, Agreed with Facebook. I mean, we we placed ads on Facebook or we, we ab- approached them to do so. And one of the things that one of the ads said was, this is the best book on Lincoln I've ever read by Mike Pence, the vice president. And because he had read it and he, he loved the book. And so we thought that was probably pretty good advertising. So this is about Christmas time. And um, we, uh, Facebook refused to run the ad. So we went back to them four different times, I think. And they had some vague thing that, we don't run political ads and whatnot and they wouldn't really tell us anything more than that as you said the book itself was a, a novel about abraham lincoln about the last five years of his life when he was president during the civil war and the assassination and so on and the book has been widely praised i mean people it's a beautifully written book it's heavily researched it's fiction but very accurate historical fiction and um people were crazy about the book so and we thought well sell some more books, um, advertise it on Facebook. But they had a different idea. So they never did resolve it. Um, but in the end, it turned out well for us because we used it as in advertising and promoting the book, that this is the book that Facebook won't advertise. Right. And in fact, the um, John Cribb, the author, went on um, Fox & Friends one morning and it went to the top of the charts on Amazon. Um, I mean, just that day because of the all of the people that, uh, were offended, I guess, and wanted to read about Abraham Lincoln. So the book has pretty much become a classic. I mean, it sells on continually and gets um, a lot of attention. Um, and uh, it just, I guess, uh, typical of the way Facebook seems to be working by, um, uh, the best we could figure out is that they had not run the ad because Pence's name was in it.
0: Right. Did you try running any ads without Pence's name in it just to see what would happen?
1: I don't think we did. No, I don't think so. Um,
0: and and so this is, you know, like you said, this is sort of unprecedented for you. You you didn't face this kind of of. I don't know if you want to use the word censorship or just undermining of of your books in the past. What is happening today that makes that makes that an acceptable path for these companies to take?
1: Hard to say. Probably a lot of different things. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's happening all around us. There's a current situation, not our book, but a book by another publisher that Amazon has refused to sell um, because they don't like what the book is about. And, I mean, that never would have happened before. You know, I mean, there, in, at any time, there may be a bookstore, a particular bookstore that wouldn't stock a book because you do it. That's fine. I mean, somebody owns a the bookstore. They can sell whatever they want. But Amazon now sells 52%, I think, of all the books in the in the country. So it's like... You know, they're like the electric company, or the telephone company. You know, you've got, um, it's almost a utility. And so do they have an obligation? I mean, some, obviously some books, a book on child pornography or something, you can understand that. But where there's a serious book by a serious author that's well-produced and, and um, is highly acclaimed, and they just take it off the list because they disagree with it, is censorship. No question. Um, right. Why is it happening? I guess, I don't know, I guess because they can't.
0: And you know, you said that they're they've become like utilities. Is that your kind of solution to this censorship? I know there's been so many ideas that are thrown around about what to do about this. Should they just be regulated like a utility, like a common carrier, and just say, hey, you have to accept any book that that isn't something illegal, that isn't something that violates the First Amendment or some other type of law? Um, is that is that the way forward to keep to prevent this from happening?
1: No, probably not. I mean, that's big. It's it's maybe too much big government. Do you want government doing that? You probably don't. Probably the better solution is somebody starts a competing company, and there are several other platforms. I mean, there there you can buy a book from a good many other places besides Amazon, and I hope people do. I mean, that's what happens in this in the free market economy. Is something you don't like one company, so somebody starts up another one and makes a product that competes with them, and maybe eventually puts them out of business. That's the way it's supposed to work.
0: Right. Is there is is there a point, though, that a company like Amazon or or Facebook or one of these platforms gets so big and so powerful that that it becomes impossible then to to compete with them?
1: Yeah, sure it does. I mean, you know, here they for a long time, you had three automobile companies and, um, you know, they had it all figured out. And the the, um, building another company was so expensive, nobody could do it. And they, they had figured out all the regulations and they had people on the inside of the government that regulated things and whatnot and nobody else could. I mean, now you do have another one and you had foreign companies that came in and started selling cars here and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I guess it it can happen. And um, when it does, we're all, we're we're all going to suffer. Right. I mean, who do you, do you want Jeff Bezos telling you what to read?
0: Of course not. (laughs) Right is there something that that you're going to do as a publisher going forward to do you factor that in now into your marketing or or into any any process of of publishing do you think about this potential censorship or do you just say we're just going to publish what we want to publish and market it the way we want to market it and let the cards fall where they may
1: yeah pretty much the latter you know we it doesn't bother us um and sometimes it helps, you know, as, as when F- Facebook, um, refused to add, to advertise, run our ads, we sold a lot of books. And maybe that's sort of what the answer is. I don't know. Um,
0: I wanted to ask you about, um, Alec Klein, because we had him on the podcast as well. And he, his story is heartbreaking. And I know that he, when he r- was originally going to publish his memoir, he had it he was going to publish with another publisher and they ended up dropping him and and you guys picked him up can you walk me through that process how you found him why you why you picked up his book
1: um yes he was he had a contract with another publisher that was distributed by yet another publisher that's something that that happens in the industry and from what we understand the bigger company that was distributing the smaller company said uh you, you publish this book and we won't distribute it anymore um so, and I don't know exactly what went on, but it was something like that. And um so we where did we get it? I think there was an agent involved that called, I believe, if I remember correctly, that um that asked if we could if we would look at it. It was when we were just getting started. It was one of the first books we published, so we were glad to do it. And in fact, there have been several other books that have something sort of similar happening. I mean, it's um it's not unusual these days, or well, I mean it happens anyway, for a um, publisher to drop a book for one reason or another now it's happening because of politics and um, so there's one book that just came out the 19th hijacker I don't know if you talked to the author of that one yet but he, he was um, he he's written what 15 other books or something like that but um, so he's a well-known author and he simply couldn't get it published I mean no no new York publisher would touch it so we, we came along, I knew him, and he called me one day, and so we eventually published this book. Um, and there are two or three others that have some sort of similar cir- circumstances. More likely that they can't get published than they actually get dropped, but um, it does happen. And of course, the Hawley book, um, the, uh, Simon & Schuster dropped it, and then Regnery predecessor, my other, earlier company, did just pick it up. So they're getting that book out, um, Josh Hawley's book, The Senator from Missouri.
0: Is there a particular book that you've published that you're particularly proud of? Is there one that stands out to you?
1: Yes, there is. And um, probably it's it's one of my great publishing stories. It was back at the other company. It was in, oh, about the late 90s. I was approached by somebody representing a Romanian dissident who had defected, who had a book. And this fellow had been the, it was actually not more than a dissident. He was the had been the head of Romania's foreign intelligence service during the communist times. Nicolae Ceausescu was the head of state, and he was sort of his right-hand intelligence agent. Um, And the Romanians, as you remember, were pretty nasty. Um, The communist government was one of the most brutal, one of the most uh, restrictive. Anyway, he had defected to the United States, um, been debriefed by the CIA, and this was a book on the inside of what was going on um, inside this communist government. This is, of course, still during communism, and um, so we—I had a—I hired a um, retired defense intelligence agent um, to agency agent to go through the book and make sure everything was right. And he spent, I think, a month at the Library of Congress researching to make sure that everything he had in there It was just a lot of inside stuff about what happened in this guy's office and in the Romanian intelligence service and so on. I mean, it was explosive. And uh, ultimately we published the book. Um, he was threatened to be killed numbers of times. Um, we had people call the office that threatened to kill us if the book was published. Um, we went ahead with it. I mean, the FBI was in and out of our office a good deal that, that winter. And, um, we ultimately did publish it. Um, it sold very well. And I think it was, we've sold rights to maybe 25 other countries where it was published. And, um, it was, as I say, I mean, it, it really opened up what was happening in the secretive government. Um, very satisfying. Well, then, um, Radio Free Europe agreed to read the book in Romanian into Romania, which is what they did in the communist days. And um, so they read a chapter a day into Romania. And that was just before, if you remember, when Ceaușescu was basically kidnapped and assassinated by the counter revolutionaries. And um, the freedom, I mean, it was the end of communism in Romania. So um, the right after they did that, the first thing they did was they took control of the newspaper in, in Bucharest, um, the counter-revolutionaries did, these were the good guys, and they started running on the front page this, this uh, ch- uh, chapters from our book you know, in Romania, Red Horizons was a title, and they said this was the book that instigated the downfall of Nicolae Ceausescu. Wow. So I felt, I mean, the book had been turned down by, I don't know, 15 or 20 publishers in in the United States. Nobody would touch it. We did. And so what I say that is that um, it's a tough business, publishing is, and it's hard to make much money. But if you can bring down a government now and then, hey, it's all (laughs) worthwhile.
0: What would you say to people to give them the the courage to do that? Because I I think that's such a big problem. I would say today, but maybe that's just kind of always been a problem is that there's so few people who are willing to stand up and say, you know, Hey, this thing needs to be published. People need to hear this. And if we get threats, we'll, we'll address them and figure out what to do. What was it that gave you guys the courage to do it? And how, how would you try to instill that courage in in other people?
1: Well, it's human nature to some extent, I guess. Um, I mean, you, you know, you go back a long time in this country, the people that signed the Declaration of Independence knew they were committing treason. You know, I mean, they knew if the Brits came along, they were going to hang them. And they said, "Hey, it's it's worth taking that chance because do we want this country to go on under the rule of the British king, or do we want to be free?" And um, you know, Patrick Henry, "Give me liberty or give me death." And there are always some people that are willing to do that. Um, A good many people aren't, and it's probably still the way it is. So um, I'm not sure that you can instill that in anybody else by other than by setting an example. Yeah. And um, it happens all the time. Um, I mean, even in in all over the world. I mean, some people you look at the the people in Hong Kong last year who were willing to take on the communist government. I mean, a good many of them probably still sitting in prison, but never and they lost. But nevertheless, they were willing to do it because they thought that freedom was worth the risk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key is you have to realize there's there's things worse than losing that it's yeah. just it surrenders worse worse than anything so i i think that's that's to me that's the lesson that can be taught to people is is to prioritize principles over just safety or winning or however you want to define it right there's been a a fission that's arisen in conservatism, you know, with the, with the election of, of President Trump and kind of the more populist conservatives versus the, I guess you could say the more traditional Buckley type conservatives. Have you or, or your company, do you take a position in, in that fight or do you publish across the conservative spectrum?
1: No, we don't take a position. Um, I mean, we don't agree with every book that we publish. Um, if we're the pretty much the decision is... Um, when we have lots of choices these days of things to publish, is it um, the first? Is it is it well written? Is the is the author credible? Um, does does he or she know what she what they're talking about? Um, have they done the research? Um, now that doesn't mean that we're going to publish something that we totally disagree with. No, but if it's a um, an argument that we think is one that needs to be made, and one that that um, serves the public interest um, as we see it, um, and which as I say, is, is credible and well-written, um, those are sort of the first things we, we look at. Of course, obviously, as a business person, you have to say, can we sell the book? I mean, there are a lot of great books that I see that um, you think nobody's going to buy this book, or not very many people, and it's re- relatively expensive to produce a book and um, to market it and sell it, so you need to know how you're going to get your money back.
0: And is there advice?
1: The criteria.
0: Is there advice you'd give someone who wants to publish their first book? Is there something that they need to do? Do they need to build up a reputa- up reputation first? Is it, what's the best way to approach you or your company if I want to publish my very first book?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, um, some people publish their first book because they've had a lifetime experience doing something very worthwhile and they want to write about it. And other people just want to be a writer and they're looking for something to write about. So if you're one of the latter, um, yeah, you probably should have some articles printed. You should get some standing in the community that you're writing into that you need to have the credibility um, that people are going to want to buy the book um, and that you have something worthwhile to say. You know, I mean, I've always sort of thought that an author needs to either be an expert at writing or an expert in what he's writing about. Lots of people don't. I mean, they're probably, and of course these days you can self-publish a book. That's pretty easy to do. And, um, you know, you might sell two or three, 400 copies to your friends and others, sometimes a lot more than that. But it it is a good way to overcome that hurdle of having a publisher that's going to take your book instead of somebody else's. So it, it's a, as I say, it's it's pretty easy to book self-publish these days. And um, you're not going to, you're probably not going to sell a huge number of them but you might. So it depends what the topic is, of course.
0: Right. Do you have any books coming up that you're getting ready to publish that you're excited about?
1: Oh yeah, there are a couple. Um, There's a book I was just working on yesterday that's just, I think we're just sending it to the printer this week called Bogus Science um, by George Malone, who was a Wall Street Journal reporter and writer for 40 years. Um, Covered a lot of different things, but this is a book about um, how science and politics get mixed up together and where um, science is used by politicians basically to get something that is not very scientific. And I mean, the big topics in the book are the, the, uh, the virus. I mean, he has a lot of criticism about what passed as science as we went along and which wasn't scientific. And then the other big issue is climate change. And he his takes, which I agree with that um, climate change is pretty much of a hoax. It's a way to spend a lot of money and get control of a lot of things. But as human beings, we're not going to have any impact on the climate. There are too many other things going on. He makes a very credible argument. He's a very clear writer and sort of sets all the facts out. Um, so I, that that's going to be a wonderful um, project. Uh, we just just signed a book about George Soros. Um, that's, that'll be a while before that comes out, sort of who he is and where he came from and what's um, all the things that he's done, how his vast billions of Um, he's used to try to change the world and how he succeeded. So um, yeah, that's a good one. We have, um, oh, let's see, there's, um, there are several others um, just on the way out, you know, they, each one has got its own um, topic and whatever Um, the, well, actually the the other, the one other that's just coming out is a book called the 19th hijacker. That's actually out. So when I mentioned a minute ago, Um, that's, um, I'd say it's a fictional account of the guy that flew the uh, um, United Flight 93 on September 11th into the um, Pennsylvania mountainside. Um, interesting book. He was a, he was not a Saudi. He was Lebanese, came from a good family. Uh, his father was president of a bank. His uncle was in the parliament. He'd gone to the best schools in Lebanon, well-educated, uh, was not a radical and was ultimately radicalized. Um, to fly planes and but then a lot of the background was lost i mean we he couldn't find it, so it's it's fictional as to how he got radicalized by the by the Islamists and then how he actually learned to fly and he almost bailed out um at the last minute because wow. he wasn't convinced that what he was doing the right was the right thing. Great story actually, so it's um it's just out
0: yeah, I'll have to read that one that sounds fascinating,
1: yeah, it's very interesting.
0: Has there been a book that you've published that you regretted publishing? That maybe the author turned out to not be credible, or or the argument was was debunked? Is there any one you thought oh, we just shouldn't have have done that?
1: Well, there's always a book that doesn't sell very well. You think, <laughs> right. <in a> way. <laughs> I don't know. There's there. No, I don't think so. Um, some of them, as, as I say, didn't go anywhere, and that may be why. Um, it's not unusual that you get all excited about a book and then you realize at some point that it's not doesn't have. And every every publisher does that. I mean, there's a every year there's a, the Publishers Weekly, which is the trade magazine, does a story on the books that were touted as going to be the big bestsellers over the last year that that just fizzled out. There are always a bunch of those. Um, so it's to some extent how they're marketed, how you present the author. Um, the what I mean, they're not not unusual for a book to be written about something. That by the time the book comes out, it's a sort of a slow process. Is really not long any longer a particularly wow. vibrant um, factor or issue. So those happen, but then there are, there are big novels also that we don't do much fiction or the big fiction that uh, New York publishers do. But not unusual for somebody to write a um, big novel and they think this is going to be the, the you know the big book of the year and it doesn't go anywhere. it happens.
0: Is it is it difficult to predict when a book's going to do well or not? How how often are you incorrect or correct on, on how well a book does?
1: Mm, I don't know. Um, yeah, you often, you often do miss it. Um, and think it's going to, I don't know. I, I haven't really ever kept track, but, okay. um, and there's sometimes that you publish a book and you think, yeah, well, it's okay, but it's probably not going to be huge. And then it just busts out and it becomes a big, big thing. I mean, uh, you know, a big, television interview with an author where um depending on one of the things of course is that if you if you're doing a book on current affairs and we've done a lot of those um you need what's called a news book you need to say something the author has to something in the book that hasn't been disclosed before describe something and um you know it's if you could do that and then it becomes in the news and people are talking about the book all the time that sells lots of books that's um but if you have one of those things and then it's been all disclosed before the book comes out and it's no longer a big deal, that is pretty disappointing. So.
0: I was going to say, I, I feel like that, that might be a common issue when you're writing about current events, that it takes a long time to write and develop a book. And if you're writing it on a current event, maybe that event something happens and and it becomes moot or people just aren't interested in the event anymore is that is that a regular issue that you run into much more now than it used to be because you've got you know this
1: instant news cycle and um so much access and so many things are the the, of course i mean the on the internet you put anything up it's not edited and and people disclose things so yeah that's it's much more of an issue is that a book is probably less likely to be the thing that breaks open a big story than it once was. Well, Al- time, it was really the only way you did it, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. That was the news. Was whatever was being published in books. That's I hadn't thought of that. Right. Uh, Alfred Regnery, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed your book since I was in high school, so I'm I'm so glad that well, Regnery's been around and that, that and you're still publishing.
1: To be with you, and uh, certainly appreciate it, and look forward to watching our other author- authors on your podcast.
0: Absolutely.